Sir Palpin, the two of Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Monday. This weekly Monday appearance which has occurred, in this case, on a Monday. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program, as he does every week. Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball of particular note. This week, Dave Cameron has a new MacBook. He couldn't use it to record this edition of the podcast, however, because while the Blue Yeti microphones we use very conveniently feature a USB cable, the new MacBook possesses only USB-C ports. The situation will be unfamiliar to those with some knowledge of Apple products at some point to use connectable items with the new MacBook. All those items will require a USB-C cord. As a result, all the previously connectable items will become obsolete, as will the old MacBook, which will no longer support items require a USB-C port. It's all an illustration of planned obsolescence, practice of designing products that become irrelevant before their time. How, I asked Dave Cameron, might this apply to baseball? Is there a type of player, for example, likely to be rendered obsolete by current trends in the game? Cameron's short answer, yes. Soft-tossing pitchers. His longer answer is longer and included in what follows. Also in the program, I asked Cameron to utilize the rhetorical pattern known as compare and contrast or comparing and contrasting to examine the Milwaukee Brewers and Minnesota Twins, two clubs in the upper Midwest finding success a year early. And finally, I ask him how the public might react if this episode of Fangraphs Audio appears to be carefully considered and well-produced. Everyone's going to think like, oh, you cheated. Good job. Hurtful, hurtful words from Dave Cameron there. We will proceed momentarily to a conversation with that same managing editor. But first, allow me to remind you that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable sum. Readers of Fangraphs.com can support the great work that occurs at that site. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, those same readers can invest in what is known as an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, facilitating faster loading speeds, and also liberating oneself. It liberates... You can liberate, liberating oneself from the distortive effects of advertising. Fangraphs ad-free membership available at Fangraphs.com. Okay, that is an advertisement and it is now complete. Now we move on to the aforementioned conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. tell you something uh, when we last spoke you mentioned offhand vince coleman i think oh we were talking about this sort of rajai davis type right um just, uh, good base runners who or, or guys we know were, without a doubt were fast right but who lacked some of the skills that fast players are supposed to have yeah and i was just looking at vince coleman's uh, player profile page and obviously he attempted a lot of stolen bases in his career, um, and really pretty much up till the end of his career. Um, but I was looking at 1995. 1995, he attempted 58 stolen bases. And by the way, I'll, I'll preface this by saying this is probably not the most flagrant example of this, but it, I happen to have been looking at Vince Coleman's uh, page. He attempted 58 stolen bases, and all told, he only produced uh, 1.3 runs from base running. <laughs> and I don't, I, I, I didn't divide it up into stolen base runs, so perhaps he was just really bad the other way. But here's the, here's the thing about that. That seems like so much effort to produce just one run. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I I would imagine he didn't look at it that way. He probably thought of it as I'm producing so much effort, or I'm giving so much effort in order to stay in the big leagues. Because the only thing I have really is my speed, and if I don't run, no one's going to roster me. Right. So that was that was how he did. I don't know what it's like to be a fast person. You know, um, like I I can run faster than most children. Um, so I but I guess that what it, that's must, must be what it feels like if you're Vince Coleman and you're just running against other adults. Right, you're just like, well, I'm faster than you. I might as well show off. Yeah, but do you think it's is it exhausting? Is it as exhausting? Does I don't know. Does does um, uh, Usain Usain Bolt Usain Usain Bolt? Yes, that's a person. Yeah, does I don't know. Does he look tired when he's done? Well, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, but I would imagine like Vince Coleman, you know, like and Usain Bolt, they train for this so that they're less tired than we would be. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I do not do. Uh, I do not care for sprinting. Uh, what do you care for in terms of like athletic endeavors? No, very few of them. <laughs> I do them though. I, I have a ha- I, the the annual half uh, half marathon is is uh, coming up October first. Uh, you're going to do all 13 miles like on foot. Yeah, that's how that's how you do. It. I I I this may not uh, fit your. The, the sort of caricature you've built of me, Dave Cameron, but I'm actually not at, I'm not that bad at, at running long distances. Okay. Do you want to hear my so, half marathon story? Okay. Have you heard it before? I don't know if I've told you this before. No, d- did you run one? Uh, sort of. Okay. So after I got leukemia, my wife was a PA at the cancer center and a bunch of her coworkers decided they wanted to do a team in training marathon, uh, or half marathon, which team in training is the fundraising arm of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. So you run and raise money for leukemia and lymphoma and uh, other blood diseases, uh, blood cancers specifically. Uh, so anyway, there were like six of them and they were all going to go to Cincinnati. Uh, and I was like, you know, probably three, maybe two months out of uh, treatment at this point. And I was like, mm-hmm. I want to run with you. And so I like started training to like run this half marathon with him because I thought it'd be a lot of fun. And then my doctor was like, what are you doing? You can't run a half marathon. You just finished chemo. You're a crazy person. So they told me to drop out of the race. Uh, so anyway, I accompanied my wife and a bunch of coworkers to Cincinnati for the, um, what's it called? It's got something to do with a pig, uh, cause they make you wear a pig nose when you run it. It's, uh, anyway, Cincinnati's marathon slash half marathon. So we get up at like six in the morning to like run the race cause they happen very early before it gets hot in the summer. Flying uh, pig marathon. Flying pig. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. It was the flying pig. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had driven all the way to Cincinnati. I was there. I was like, you know what? I, at least I'm going to do what I can. Like, at no point just sitting on the stands, sitting in the stands for three hours. Like, I'm, I'm just going to go see what I can do. So I went to the starting line because I had already registered and, uh, before I'd been forced to drop out. Uh, and so with my wife and some of our coworkers, we like ran the first couple miles and then like the flying pig has a significant uphill climb in downtown Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, screw that. <laughs> I just like, nope, nah, I'm not going to do that. So I ran like the first couple miles and uh, then went and had like a bagel or something while I waited for, uh, the rest of my teammates to rejoin me. But the, the flying pig is not like well securitized. Mm-hmm. Um, so as they came back down the giant hill to come back to the finish line for like the last mile and a half, I just like came back on the course and, uh, ran to the end. So I ran like the first two and the last mile and a half or so. I ran like three and a half of the 13 miles. Uh, and I got an official time and I finished ahead of my wife. 
she, <laughs> she ran 13 miles. I ran three, but I, they said I finished in like 704th place and she came in like 706th. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the, isn't that what Rosie Ruiz, you did a Rosie Ruiz. Yeah, basically. Although I think she took a cab. I didn't, I didn't actually go anywhere. Yeah, hers I was just, flagrant. Like, I mean, yeah. it's pretty, I don't, there, there is that line, right, at which, um, courage and foolhardiness uh they they become entangled um i mean she was was she bold or was she just stupid yes i think both yeah both right yeah Yeah. well okay hey i have a question for you of course uh, (laughs) uh, sometimes dave cameron when when we talk i'll ask you about a real world situation and then ask you to identify what in baseball is like that real world situation okay you perform in analogies actually uh, this has to do with the um, with the your macbook this okay. has to do with the macbook okay yeah, um, okay we uh, briefly corresponded uh, and you you suggested to me that um, in fact the microphone you have the the blue yeti microphone yeah. would now be would not fit your computer because why because the apple really likes to um make things obsolete before they actually are obsolete so they Put only on the new MacBook Pros the uh, USB-C connection. There's four USB-C ports. There's no any other kind of port. So if you have any cord that is not a USB-C cord, which is, you know, 99% of all, uh, you know, periphery attachments in the world, then you have to get a little stupid dongle in order to connect them. And I didn't realize until this morning that I was going to have that problem when recording them. Uh, so I had to... Now I'm using my old one. Is there any other argument for uh, for Apple to... Uh, to include only USB-C ports, uh, if there if there are indeed four places for them to to have this sort of thing. Yeah, so I I think what Apple's business strategy essentially is to create demand in order to force the supply to catch up to the technology they want. So they 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 have a history of doing this. They did this on the iPhone a couple of years ago where they took away the headphone jack. Uh, so now you can't plug external headphones into your phone anymore. If you buy a new iPhone, um, they want you to buy wireless headphones. And they think their argument is that wireless headphones are just as good these days. And there's no real point to have a wired headphone anymore. And if you have one, screw you. Um, buy new wireless ones, preferably from them, for more money. Um, and so they, they've done this throughout their history as a company where they continually say, you know, this is the new standard. This thing is better than what currently exists. And so because we're going to make this the only setting on our on our platform and people are going to buy our platform, then it's going to create demand for these um, peripheries or these attachments or whatever they are to have this new generally um, exclusive uh, charging cord or port or whatever it is that they're trying to push forward. You really have to have already a baseline level of demand, don't you, in order to force people to go out of their way to, to make their lives even more complicated. Yeah. I mean, you have to have like, brand loyal customers, which Apple absolutely has. They have a lot of people who are locked into the Apple ecosystem, and they're just going to be like, well, I wouldn't even consider anything else, so I'm just buying the newest Apple products because that's what I do. Uh, And so they can essentially just tell those people, now you have to go buy a whole bunch of new peripherals or attachments or dongles or whatever they're called. Well, this isn't the question I was going to ask, but allow me to ask this one too. Obviously, Major League Baseball, in particular with uh, broadcasting rights and access and fees, uh, they 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 find themselves perhaps in a similar situation, where they um, they find ways. It seems as though they find ways to infuriate their their base, um, even perhaps because they know that they that that base is uh, loyal, perhaps to a fault. 
Right. If you have customers who um, see no essentially substitution, right? Like uh, if you have like a general sports fan and he's like, well, I don't like basketball this year. I'll just watch football or I don't like, you know, blackberries this year. I'll just have raspberries. Like if you can just like see things as, you know, pretty comparable, then, you know, if someone does something to upset you or to uh, make their products seem worse, then you'll just change to another one and be like, well, no, no harm, no foul. I only have so many uh, hours to, to consume sports or I only have so many, uh, so much room in my stomach for different berries, whatever it may be, you just like change. Whereas, you know, I think baseball fans probably, um, more so than other sports fans are baseball fans, right? Like there's probably fewer people who are just general sports fans, um, who are like, oh, baseball, football, hockey, basketball, give it or take it. I don't really care. I think a lot of baseball fans are just baseball fans. And if they're upset with baseball, they're not going to switch to football or basketball. They're just going to be like, well, this sucks. The product I like is worse. And there's no other option to watch baseball. Yeah. All right. Well, now let me let me get to the the idea I was going to pursue, uh, which is this idea of obsolescence. You already mentioned that um, uh, Apple is sort of known for this. I think it's what is it forced forced obsolescence? For uh, planned planned obsolescence, obsolescence. right? Yes. Where there's an idea that uh, uh, the the product you buy has a shelf life on it, uh, yeah. whether you like it or not. Yeah. Right. And it's usually shorter than it should be. Right. Uh, so but I'm curious, though, because this the, your old MacBook now, right, this one with the USB ports, uh, presumably yeah. it's it's functional. It could exist in the in the modern day, uh, in, you know, in the present. However, uh, it has, as you said, it has a shelf life. There's a limit to its efficacy in the future. Right, right. yes. And I guess my – I guess uh, – so my question is, is this one of obsolescence? And uh, sort of a, pl- a planned date in the future where the thing in question will be irrelevant. Um, I guess I, I would ask, what is this like in baseball? And in particular, I'm, I'm, who, who is this sort of – who is the old MacBook of baseball players, do you think? This might be someone on the cusp of relevance. And it might be – it's not just because he's on an age-related decline, but are there certain skills that are just not – that just won't exist in the future? Are there players in the league now who possess a type of profile that just won't be relevant in the future? Yeah, so I mean, I think if we were going to talk about, like, what kind of player will just, like, what skill set of player isn't going to exist in baseball in 10 years, it's the back-end innings either starting pitcher. That guy is going to go away. Like the, um, I don't know, who's a good example? Marco Gonzalez, right? Like the, the soft-throwing 88 to 92 mile an hour lefty who, you know, isn't very good but can give you six innings. Although Marco Gonzalez isn't very good at that Wait, either. what but about like, Brent you know, Suter? Can... Where will, what will happen to Brent Suter? Uh, well, at that point, he'll probably be throwing 73. So he might be in, like, a local beer league. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he's not going to be in Major League Baseball. Uh, there's actually a really good piece. Tyler Kepner, I think, for the New York Times uh, did um, highlighting specifically driveline baseball and Kyle Bodie's work, but kind of uh, talking about the trends and velocity overall and where the game is going. And I think in the piece, Tom House, who's, a, you know, been a pitching expert slash guru slash whatever for, like, 20 or 30 years, uh, talked about how the, the baseline for getting into Major League Baseball is rising so quickly that he thinks within five to eight years, if you don't throw 95, you won't exist. You won't be a, like you won't be allowed in the game. That's going to be the new. There's going to be so many kids who can throw 95 that if you're throwing 91, it doesn't matter if you have a good curveball and a good changeup because there's someone else who throws 95 who has just as good a curveball and a good changeup. And I think we've clearly seen the the velocity uh, at the top end increase where we're seeing guys throw harder than they ever have before. Um, but kind of what that article talked about is 
um, how we're really going to see kind of the bottom end come way up as well. So, like, the Jamie Moyers and the Jared Weavers and, the, you know, the Mark Burleys, those guys are just going to go away. Okay, wait, so but the, those pitchers you just mentioned, you're mentioning them because they were good at, at points, certainly. I mean, Mark right. Burley yeah. was basically good. He was basically the yeah. same pitcher the entire time. Right. And so you're, like, specifically invoking pitchers who were able to survive in the league for a long time despite it. Now, right. I think Jared Weaver uh, at the beginning of his career probably had some – Relatively average velocity, right? Yeah, right. He used to throw in the nineties. Right. He's he he didn't always throw this. Right, yeah. but then, but uh, obviously, uh, Mark Burley, uh, Jamie Moyer is certainly the last decade of his career, and uh, and as I need to mention once again, Brent Suter, who <laughs> uh, who has b- above average pitching numbers across the board. These are pitchers who are surviving or, or who have survived right. despite uh, something less than average velocity. Are you? Is there? Are you not essentially creating an inefficiency by uh, by ignoring you know an entire population of of people? So I think the argument would be um, that at least the house's argument, which I mostly buy, is that the things that those guys can do uh, are only unique in the sense that there aren't enough hard-throwing guys who can also do them, and that's not going to be the case in the future, right? So, like, Jamie Moyer and, you know, these guys who had really good off-speed pitches and really good command, um, they got to the big leagues because that stuff was able to overcome, uh, you know, the velocity deficit that they had with the rest of baseball. If they had thrown 95 and had all that stuff, they'd have been even better. But the secondary stuff and the command was so so effective that there weren't enough guys throwing harder than them who could match them and those skills, and those skills do matter, where if we have a new generation of kids coming up who are, you know, 15, 16, 17 right now and are already getting into the mid-90s and with more strength training and more, you know, kind of plyo ball throwing and all the kind of um, weighted ball training that's going on in baseball, if those guys are eventually all going to get into the high 90s by the time they become draft eligible or, you know, knocking on the door to the major leagues, some of those guys are also going to have plus command and plus breaking balls and plus change-ups. And you're going to have this wave of kind of pitchers who had Jamie Moyer or Jared Weaver type skills, but also now throw 96. And you won't need to dip into the guys who throw 80 anymore. Like think of it like in basketball, right? Like, yes, there's a Muggsy Bogues occasionally or Isaiah Thomas these days, these like five, 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 seven basketball players. Like they do exist, but they're extremely rare because in general you can find a six five guy who does the same thing. So Right, and the and the other thing is it, probably right, becoming more rare because there seem to be more six five guys. This is anecdotal, but more six five guys who can shoot and dribble right. as well. Yeah. Than were in the league, you know, a decade or two ago. Right. Um, so, so now, if I, if if Brent Suter, if, or the equivalent of Brent Suter, uh, exists in this version of the game you're suggesting, say it's ten years from now. I mean, what at this point, especially if starters innings continue to decrease, you have to figure that the average the average fastball velocity is what ninety five, ninety seven at that point. Yeah, I would. I mean, I think we're at 93 now, so within the next decade, I think getting to 95 is reasonable. Yeah, right. I mean, or or probable because I just a couple of years ago it was 91. So right. I mean, the I question mean, is like, a... can we continue to sustain an increase at the same rate? I don't know. I mean, that's uh, something that I think is tough to predict. But you know, Do you know so... who might know? You know who might know? Who? Tom House. Do... Well, yeah, maybe, but also maybe Dr. Alan Nathan. Maybe I don't. I don't know. He's done that much work on <laughs> pitching velocity. I know, but he helps us with so much else. Yeah, he does. He's he's really awesome. Yeah, thank you, Doctor Allen. Uh, so, so if you, so the Brent Suter, a decade from now, would he just? Is there a, a possibility he would make it? But he would be 
like a 30th round draft pick who essentially percolates to the top after after just essentially after years of proving himself at the minor league level, which by the way kind of already describes Brent Suter. So yeah, so I think the reality is like that guy just won't get drafted. If you throw 86 in high school, mm-hmm. you're just not going to get drafted because there's like there's only so many draft picks to use, right? And like currently. And, you know, a 96 mile an hour fastball makes you a top three round pick or something, assuming you have like reasonable command and, you know, some athleticism. Um, you know, if you're sitting in the mid nineties, you basically put yourself in that kind of top three, top five area. Even if you're, you know, don't have secondary stuff, teams will just be like, well, we can teach them a breaking ball later. In 10 years, if everybody is throwing 96, then the separators will be other things and, it, and they won't even bother looking at the guy who throws 87 with a good changeup. So will he have to go to independent ball then, or will he just or will he just, he just stop he, playing he baseball just, earlier? He'll stop playing baseball. I mean, like think about like you and me, right? Like we both played high school baseball, and then we realized like we're not good enough to continue, and we just I remember went that other things. Yeah, I remember yeah. that vividly. So I think you know, it, especially with I like I think we're going to continue to see starting pitchers throw fewer and fewer innings, and we're going to see kind of the move towards you know twelve guys throwing two or three innings at a time. Like I don't think we're going to get there. Next year or the couple, but we're heading that way right now. I think like, especially this October, my guess is like the Astros are absolutely going to do this. Um, like they have Justin Berlander and Dallas Keuchel. And then after that, it's just going to be like, here's Colin McHugh for two innings and here's Lance McCullers for two innings and here's, you know, Ken Giles for two innings. Here's Chris Stavetsky for two innings. And they're just going to like multi-inning the crap out of everyone mm-hmm. in the American League playoffs. I think that's where baseball's headed long term. So, and if you have no one, you, you know, besides like the best pitchers, the Clayton Kershaws, those guys are still going to throw six or seven innings, uh, you know, in most of their starts. That's going to be like their average. But you're not going to have this back end guy being asked to go five or six innings anymore. You might have that back end guy is only expected to go three. So let's go find a guy who can throw 96 for three innings. Um, now you mentioned that if a guy throws 96, that's roughly a, a third, you know, within the top three rounds, something like that. I have to imagine, like five years ago, what was 96? What would that? What would? Where would that get you selected? Like, prob- probably a first round pick, right? Just based on their arm strength alone. I mean, was it like wasn't that long ago that Tyler Kolek was the number two pick in the draft? Yeah, okay, so that's exactly who I was about to invoke as well. Because Tyler Kolek right. is like very much like what is it like uh, the term? I think Eric Longenegan uses is arm strength lottery ticket. Right. Exactly. Right. He has one thing. He throws hard. Right. And and perhaps it's unfair to refer to him. Precisely is that because he did go second overall, which is pretty high for an arm strength lottery ticket. So you'd have to assume that if no one else did, at least Miami, um, you know, suspected that there was something else there. Um, but yeah, but I, I mean, I wouldn't assume the Marlins are well. Well, it hasn't materialized uh, really either. Yeah. I mean, beside between injury and just lack of yeah. command, he's. I mean, when did like Nick Nugabauer got drafted? Like that was like '98 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if uh, how many people listening to the podcast remember Nick Nugabauer, but he threw in the high 90s, at least the mid-90s, but I think the high 90s, and had probably the worst command of any professional pitcher in the history of baseball. Uh, and I think he was a fairly high draft choice. Well, we can do that. Even though, like, like if you look at his minor league walk rates, I'm pretty sure he averaged, like, over a walk plus hit batter per inning. Um, and he didn't have like Steve Blast disease. He just didn't. He just didn't have command. Right, and they let him do that so, at the major league level for 50, 50 innings one year, as a twenty-one yeah, yeah. year old. Huh? Yeah, I mean, he was like a he was considered like a top prospect because he threw ninety-seven, even though he had absolutely no idea where the ball was going. Um, and so I think you know, like that velocity, like that used to be considered so rare. Like, oh man, it doesn't matter that he 
just doesn't can't see the plate or whatever his problem. Like Nick Newbauer is basically, you know, throwing blind. Right. What about how would you compare him to Matt like, Anderson, the former? Uh... Oh, Matt Anderson could throw strikes. He just threw it right down the middle. Yeah. He was actually a collegiate. Matt Anderson was like, "Here's a home run ball a for collegiate you." Pitcher. Hmm. Didn't realize that. Yeah, he got hit hard. I think there was always questions yeah. as to why that was happening. Yeah, I think he was like the great example of like uh, straight fastballs get whacked. Right. Straight fastballs Where Nick, do get whacked. Yes, and especially if there's no, yeah. I suppose if there's no threat of a secondary pitch. Right. If it's just like I'm sitting on 97 down the middle, mm-hmm. I can hit that. <laughs> I think. The, I mean, not me personally, you but no, no, you know, I think you can. <clears throat> yeah. So the so the player who most likely to become obsolete is is this is the soft tossing inning eating guy. Yeah, I don't think we're gonna have these hundred and seventy, you know, one twenty ERA minus guys. Okay, so uh, subtract so minus rotation. that that type of player. What would the Seattle Mariners pitching staff look like this year? <laughs> uh, I mean, they're planned one. They didn't go into the season. Like, Felix Hernandez and James Paxton, like, these guys aren't that. They, you know, Drew Smiley wasn't that, but they just all got hurt. So their rotation ended up being, like, their third, their 8th through 13th best starters. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Jerry DePoto clearly has a fondness. Jerry DePoto will have to get fired for this to- totally coming to because he really likes these guys or at least sees some value in, like, Finding these, you know, command guys with mediocre stuff and hoping they play well at a big park with good defense behind him. Um, but assuming Jerry DePoto is not still running a team in ten years, then these guys won't exist. Okay, and it'll just be guys who have some velocity and can throw strikes sufficiently. I mean, you're still going to have guys. You're still going to have command spreads, but the you're going to now the new Mark Burleys will throw 93 instead, right? Like there will still be guys who don't throw as hard as the league average. It's not like you know everyone's going to flatten velocity wise entirely. But the soft tossers are going to come up five miles an hour. In right. Okay. Is there is there a pitcher now that you think is kind of like the model? Well, you mentioned uh, – I don't know if you mentioned any name specifically, but a guy who will be like the average pitcher five to ten years from now? In terms of velocity? Well, velocity and just like overall scope, like what you're talking about, is to sort of like the – what is Mark Burley? I mean, that's the problem. Like Mark Burley or Jamie Moyer plus velocity sounds like a really good pitcher. Yeah, I mean, maybe Aaron Nola, right? Like, he's got a really good curveball. He throws in 92, 93, something like that. He hits 95. I mean, he's not a soft tosser by any stretch of the imagination. He gets strikeouts. He gets ground balls. Like, Aaron Nola's a good pitcher. But if you, like, just take Aaron Nola's skill sets in 10 years, maybe that's like, yeah, okay. He sits 93, hits 95 occasionally, has a good breaking ball. That's our number four starter. Hmm, Tough. It's going to be tough. Good luck for hitters, man. Like, baseball's going to have to do something. Like, the... The marching trend towards the league average being 96 miles an hour is going to, like, baseball can't just sit around and be like, well, oh, well, that's the game now. Like, eventually they're going to have to do something. Is there, I mean, we we, we discussed these sort of uh, breaking points um, and, and when we last spoke, um, and um, we were, but you, of course you mentioned, well, the, the game's not going to crumble. It's not going to fall right. apart because there are agents there to make sure that that right. doesn't happen. Um, but I suppose what is the what's the easiest way to address that situation? Lower the mound, probably. Okay. I mean, you'd have to like make that change at the lower levels a long time before you made that change in the, in the major leagues. Because you can't just go to all these guys who've trained on a you know a mound that's a certain height and be like, okay, now you're throwing from a lower arm slot and lower lower leverage, and you're gonna have to figure out a pitch. Like you're gonna have to basically like change it in high school, change it in college, change it in the minors, and eventually change it in the big leagues. Um, but they've lowered the bound before. It's worked before. Um, you know, it's it's giving pitchers um, 
less of the ability to throw downhill, uh, it works. <laughs> and so, like, if, if velocity is really going to continue to trend up at this rate, uh, they might have to say, okay, well, you just don't get to stand as high. You wrote today uh, about the Minnesota Twins, in, in particular about the sort of power with which they're hitting in, the, I guess, what, the second half of the year? Of the year? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, Byron Buxton most notably, but then um, a real a whole lot of other guys, too, uh, have yeah. recorded higher isolated uh, slugging figures in the uh, in the second half of the, of the season. First, oh, Jorge Polanco, of course, uh, whom, about whom uh, Ino Saris wrote at the end of last week. Um, Eddie Rosario, who... I will say I never had heard of. Well, no, no, no. I have heard of him. I was I I was always skeptical about his ability to become a productive ball player because he swings at everything. Yeah, he seemed to really lack play discipline, and like his position, I think, has always been yeah. in question because he was what a second baseman coming up, yeah, and then right. he played some center field, but I think he's mostly con- confined he's a quarter, to a corner. Quarter right? outfielder now. He's basically yeah. turned into like good Delman Young. Yeah, that's right. Or like it's also what I kind of in. I don't think this is the the consensus view, but it's also how I view like Nick Williams' future as well in Philadelphia. Williams doesn't make quite as much contact, I don't think. Rosario is like I think in the second half of the year, it's running like a fifteen or sixteen percent strikeout rate while running on almost three hundred ISO. Right, which is a good good combination. That's a good combination. Like he doesn't do anything else. That's like the entirety of the skill set. But that's yeah. a good place to start. Yeah, if you're going to start, that's going to be it. Um, <clears throat> I've been struck, uh, especially now. Well, there's obviously well, there there's some parallels between them, both because neither of the clubs were expected to compete this year, uh, because they have relatively new front offices, um, and also their place in the standings at the moment. Uh, but the, the Minnesota Twins and the Milwaukee Brewers. Yeah, they seem to be in remarkably different places. They're they also just. There's a one-game difference between the two, obviously right. different uh, different divisions. Is is it fair? Uh, is it fair to to say? I mean, do do you sort of see these parallels, or are, are there any two other teams that are more alike than these two? Well, I think in terms of results this year, you could certainly look at it and be like, yeah, surprising contenders with young rosters, and you know, like uh, hanging around the wild card race. Um, I think in terms of like actual roster. Makeup. I wouldn't think they're that similar. Like the Twins really are built on like a few core pieces uh, with some serious upside and some serious risk. Like Buxton, you know, has been a monster for the last couple months, but you know we've seen Byron Buxton slumps. Like he, he, it's not a sure thing that Byron Buxton is going to be a high-level hitter in the big leagues. Um, he might be, but there's still a lot of uncertainty around his overall offensive abilities. Uh, Miguel Sano can really hit, but still is not a great defender and has a a body that looks like it could have some health problems and has had some health problems. And so, um, you know, they've got some pretty high ceiling guys, um, but I don't think they kind of have that kind of roster depth where the Brewers, I think, you know, we talked about this before the season, like they had, what, like 40 guys who projected for at least one more heading yeah. into the season. They yeah. didn't have that many guys who projected for two more, but like between that one and two mark, they had a lot of guys. And, you know, you're talking about like guys like Brent Suter, like the Twins could really use guys like that. They traded for Jamie Garcia for a week. They sent Bartolo Colon when the Braves cut him. Like they've kind of had to like fish around to try and fill out the end of the roster. Um, you know, they're their bullpen is being uh, held together by Matt Belial, which, you know, okay. Uh, so I, I don't know that the Twins have kind of the depth of talent that the Brewers do, but the Brewers don't necessarily have, the, like, the star foundational core players that the Twins do. Uh, two questions with regard to that. <clears throat> this might be too reductive. Tell me if it is too reductive. Do you think you could, if you were looking for one indicator of the quality of a front office, do you think it would be... The depth of a team, the depth of a guy like, you know, of having someone, I don't know, like Brent Suter. I also think that 
uh, I don't know for, for in the twins case for the example the fact that they have that Robbie Grossman's doing something very helpful right uh, for the team uh, those seem to be those players seem to be um, important for teams to, and, and Jeff Sullivan has written about this a couple times uh, it's the, the way that they avoid the awful because yeah. sometimes avoiding the awful is just as important as having or maybe it's more important that's the question here Having a, do, you, do you think that if you were looking for one indicator of the health the uh, um, the wit and uh, the, the talent of the front office do you think depth would be it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when you look at like the magnitude of the impact of the high-end players, it absolutely makes a huge difference to have these like high-end guys, but it's also very difficult to show that some evaluators are significantly better at acquiring those guys. Um, you know, most of the ways that you end up with these like high-end players is just be bad for a while and end up with high draft picks, and then you get like an Evan Longoria or a Chris Bryant or a Byron Buxton or whatever. Like, not a, that's not actually like a great skill, right? Like I intentionally put a bad team on the field to get a high draft pick and then hope that it worked. Like okay, I mean it's a plan. It's not it's, it's a plan that can work, but it's not necessarily like anything particularly insightful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, and they're not necessarily doing something that someone else couldn't have done. Um, well, but, but we... so these top draft picks, right, are like they're drafting uh, closer to the number one spot, right? Is almost it's like inherently conservative, right? Like the the when you're when you're taking those picks, you know one through I don't know what it is one through five, one through ten. Like you just you look around, and you're like, who are the best players? It's generally right. by consensus. Whereas maybe the quality of the scouting department, et cetera, is is revealed by you know all the picks after that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably true. Is if you have a good scouting department, you do better in rounds three through twenty than um, one and two. Like the in one rounds one and two obviously matter a lot because those are where the best players are. But I think a, a lot more of that is just luck. Like, you can scout all you want, but in the end, you're, you're rooting for health, you're rooting for, um, kind of things that are out of your control, um, because everyone kind of agrees, like, these are the 50 best players in the draft, and you're gonna get whichever one happens to be the best one available when you pick. Right. Um, the second question is this, um, one of the, one of the sort of qualities that is, um, uh, that is shared both by the Minnesota Twins and the Milwaukee Brewers is they have relatively new front offices. Uh, Derek Falvey and also Thad Levine in in Minnesota, right? Yeah. Uh, David Stearns most notably in Milwaukee. I don't know. I don't know if he's most notable. I mean, August Fagerstrom would be the most notable. Well, yes, of course, yes, yeah, especially right, to yeah. uh, to uh, listeners of this program. Uh, <clears throat> yes, a good point. Uh, they now obviously they both uh, took over teams that were in various states of I don't know about Disre- disrepair, but there was. Disrepair, uh, yeah. They, they they needed to be healed to some degree, right? <laughs> yeah. Who do you which of which of the organizations would you if you were a GM which of the ones would you have rather taken over? And and then I guess in what the, what that will partially answer is what's the sort of ideal situation for an incoming general manager slash you know vice. President? I would have bet that the Twins' position was a little bit more appealing, and that they already have like a really nice ballpark in downtown Minneapolis. Uh, not that Miller Park's not nice, and not that Wisconsin is not a beautiful place in the summer. I know you lived there for a while and really enjoyed it. But I think if you were looking at, like, where could I build a sustained winner, Target Field is a gorgeous place to watch a game. Minneapolis has probably a little bit more in terms of uh, infrastructure and population to draw from. Uh, and then they had Byron Buxton and Miguel Sano and, like, these kind of core franchise guys that you look at. Like, if things turn out with these guys, we could really have some pieces, and all we'd have to do is, like, 
fill out the rest of the roster and we could really have something where I think with Milwaukee you kind of went in but like okay we've got Ryan Braun who's expensive untradeable uh and mostly unliked by most of the other uh fan bases around the world so not necessarily a marketable star and he's on a you know an aging player and a long-term extension that we can't move and, you know we've got Jonathan Lucroy who's a good catcher but not a not necessarily one that's going to age exceptionally well um, and headed for free agency um, and so we're probably gonna have to trade him which they ended up doing I mean you didn't necessarily have like those significant building blocks in place and they've kind of had to start from scratch right and so so what are your what are the sort of criteria you know for you if you're going to be the one uh, assuming control of an organization I think I mean, so probably the number one thing would be supportive ownership, right? Like, I wouldn't have any interest in working for Peter Angelos. Like, just wouldn't have any interest in doing that. Right, right, right. He seems terrible. Um, so I think you'd want an owner who's basically going to, like, just write checks and get out of the way. I wouldn't want someone who's like, you know, well, I want you to draft this guy because I went and saw him and I'm playing pretend scout or whatever. Like, I would just want an owner who's just a financier, uh, essentially. That would probably be the most important thing. And then you're probably looking at, like, some kind of engaged fan base. Like, I would imagine it's really frustrating to be, you know, uh, the guys down in Tampa Bay or in Oakland or, you know, one of these places where you can win significantly and consistently and still draw 15,000 people a night. Like, um, having a nice stadium and a, you know, uh, a part of town that people would want to come to and, you know, like, uh, the ability to... Um, sustain winning long term through you know uh, local support and having some good kind of TV deal like that would probably be the number two thing um, and then so, probably so the, so the current roster construction is not among your first two not not really no I mean like you you know it helps to have a Byron Buxton in your organization but at the same time like any of those guys even if you took over a team with a you know not just a potential future star but like an actual future star. You could blow up their knee or arm at any given minute. Like you never, you just like never know with current players. The infrastructure of and the ability to acquire new players and retain the players you develop far more important than just the guys on the field. Hmm. Okay, that's very interesting. Uh, last, uh, lastly, I will ask you about uh, uh, Shohei Otani. Yeah, um, this is going to be a very interesting topic for the next few months. Yeah, right. Well, and you you outlined this what a few months ago, and then you revisited it. Um, the end of last week, uh, because it, what it's, is it very likely now that he's going to be posted? Where are we at? Report, in reports have come out of Japan that says he has reached an agreement or he had an agreement that has now become public that they that uh, he will be posted after the season. Right, but the challenge is, or, in, or the the odd thing about it is that he he would be able to make a lot more money if he just played, um, if he just stayed in Japan, certainly over the For next couple more. of years. If he stays in Japan for two years, uh, he will, assuming he stays healthy for two years and is still highly coveted by major league teams, he would walk into a massive monster guaranteed contract versus if he comes over now, he's just going to be on the standard six year, seven year, you know, minor league, um, service time contract and he wouldn't be eligible for free agency until after the 2023 season. Um, so he's pushing his potential free agency back by, you know, five years. Right. So the, so the question is, um, how any major league team is going to sign him, and, and you and you mentioned this in the, the post you wrote at the end of last week, they probably ha- will have to go around, to, to some degree, they'll have to make it clear what their intentions are for an extension, right? For Yeah, I mean, I think, like, it's going to have to come up in some kind of unofficial conversation with someone who can't be 
tied to either the agent or the team itself, but some intermediary is going to have to talk to some other intermediary and give them like some idea of what they're thinking. <laughs> it sounds it, you, the thing you're describing to me sounds like like an SEC football booster. Basically, yeah. I mean, I think this is not going to be that different from recruiting in college football. Um, where it's like everyone kind of knows that the best players are getting money under the table, uh, and no one really, um, can do anything to stop it because there's so many incentives in place to lay under that player that like no one's really just going to sit on the sidelines and be like, well, we all agreed that we're just going to let him pick wherever he wants to go. Like everyone wants Shohei Otani and Amanda's there. I can't imagine that all 30 teams are just going to be like, whatever, we don't want to do anything unethical and end up with one of the best players in the world. Right. Well, and so, and so you mentioned a couple of ways that might be possible, but it, you, you, I think it was in the, was it in the original contract? Well, no, it couldn't be in the original contract because that's just a standard uniform contract. It'd be, a, it would be in the, it would be in the second contract, a combination of opt-ins and outs. Yeah. I mean, I was just trying to basically like come up with some way to, build a contract that you could say is close enough to something that other players have signed before that Major League Baseball couldn't legally force them not to sign it, or at least the Players Association could, like, appeal and sue them or whatever whatever mechanism took place where the PA could fight it and, and kind of force Major League Baseball to approve a new contract. Um, and what, I think one of the things we've seen with these early career extensions is, like, they basically all have... Uh, like um, club options on the end, but the Cuban players specifically um, did a good job when they were coming over. The older Cuban players getting opt into arbitration, so that they weren't locked into these kind of blow market deals if they turned into superstars. And so I think there's like ways you can kind of borrow from previous contracts and be like, look, this has been done before. There's precedence for this. You can't not let us do this now. It just seems it's there's so much room for dirty dealing at this point. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the problem is that, like, um, Major League Baseball has set themselves up for bad PR no matter what. I think that's, like, the unfortunate thing of this outcome. I mean, that's not the only unfortunate thing. The real unfortunate thing, like, Shohei Otani isn't going to get paid what he's worth. But um, a, a, a kind of a an unintended consequence of the new CBA and the fact that they pushed this back two years um, in the last CBA. Because if they hadn't changed the rule in the last CBA, Otani would have been a free agent this winter and we wouldn't have had to deal with any of this. But they as part of the negotiation, pushed the age back to 25, which kept, you know, kind of um, bound him to the system for two more years. Um, and so now they're going to have, like, no matter who signs with, he can sign with the Yankees, he can sign with the Phillies, he can sign with the Padres. It doesn't matter who he signs with. The fans of the other 29 teams are going to think that whoever got him did so underhandedly. Yeah. Like, there's, like, no one's going to just accept, like, oh, you just... They just happened to pick you, and you didn't promise them anything. Okay, we believe you. Like everyone's gonna think, like, oh, you cheated. And Good so, job. when will when will Otani sign his extension? Then, do you think? I I would think that no one's gonna be willing to try and get one past Major League Baseball in the first year, like within the first yeah. twelve months. Like um, you've seen early career extensions for guys who've been in the minor leagues for a long time, or you know, like the Evan Longoria deal took place like within like a week and a half of him getting to the big leagues, but he was a top draft choice, and he'd been in the minors for a couple of years. Like they had some familiarity with him. We don't really have any examples of like a team's known a guy for five months and now they're giving him a long-term new deal. Um, that, that just doesn't right, really but, happen. Right, but so at I the same time, that, it's not as though he doesn't have a, a very obvious track record of success. It, against correct. against a co- level of competition that is what somewhere between AAA and major leagues, right? Yeah, I mean it's not that we know nothing about Otani, but I think 
my guess is like a, uh, an ownership slash front office would not try to test Major League Baseball within like the first six to 12 months. Like anything in the first six months is going to be in like an auto reject. Like if you sign him in a November and then in like March you try and <laughs> announce like a new contract, Major League Baseball is going to be like, screw you. No, like you don't get to do that. Um, and so the question really is like, where is the point? Like what, where in the calendar can you argue that like you now have to just treat him like every other major league player? If Francisco Lindor can sign a contract, why can't Shohei Otani? Um, you know, I don't think anyone knows where the point in the calendar is. My guess is like whoever gets him will wait a, at least 12 months or maybe 10 months or something in that line and say, let's talk about it. Now that you have a full year of service, you're only five years from free agency. You've proven that you're as good as we thought you were. Now we think we can like really go to major league baseball and be like, you can't stop us from doing this. He's too similar to all these other guys. Who've yeah. By the way, I do. It's unlikely to ever occur, but the a press release that just comes out from major league baseball. Screw you. You can't do this. Yeah. <laughs> that'd be, yeah, that'd be pretty, pretty fun. fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think if, uh, yeah, I mean, there's no like, there's no Mark Cuban who owns a team mm-hmm. in baseball. I think if like there was a Mark Cuban type figure in the league, if Jordan Steinbrenner was still uh, alive, we'd have a better chance for something like that, where you just had one owner who was like, "These rules are dumb, and I'm going to force you to like defend them in public." Like right now, all 30 owners are basically on board, right? Like they all kind of want to keep costs down. They realize they won the last CBA negotiations. None of them really want to screw anything up. You know, they're going to go talk to Japan about the posting fee, and they're going to try and get even more concessions where it's going to be even worse deal for the Japanese teams to send players over to America. So, like, they're kind of unified in their, let's just make a bunch more money. If we had one dude, one owner who's just like, nope, I don't care about the rest of you guys. I've got enough money. Uh, I don't actually care about profits. I just want Shohei Otani on my team. That would actually be a pretty fun yeah, scenario. Unlikely to occur... At the moment. What is likely to occur is the end of this podcast episode, Dave Cameron. All right. I am happy about that. You fulfilled your obligation. Uh, So what do we do now? We say thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome, Carson Sestouli. Okay. Stick around for just one moment. In the meantime, I will say that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I am Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.